0: Today, I'm conversing with political scientist and economist extraordinaire, Robert McLaughlin. Robert has no shortage of wit and insight into modern political and economic divides that America faces in particular. Do you think we should have Joe Rogan on the podcast?
1: I think that he has progressed the, the definition of what a podcast, what an informative podcast should do to the point where it would almost be like comedic irony. To have someone as interesting as Joe Rogan on our podcast, uh, on your
0: podcast rather. You did you ever see the Joe Rogan Mike Tyson?
1: Uh, that wasn't seems there, like one you'd be interested in. Wasn't There's there multiple? multiple. I there I think multiple. I've seen one of them. I I don't really watch Joe Rogan as much as I should, <laughs> but I've I've seen a few of the like major interviews. I've seen one of the Mike Tyson ones. I saw.
0: Did you see the one where Mike Tyson said that, like when he knocks people out, he gets he 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 gets orgasmic is what he was saying.
1: I mean, it makes sense the 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 level of violence that that man brings to the ring is it, it's it's almost artistic. So I I don't blame him.
0: Are you big into boxing?
1: Yeah, actually, uh, I used to. Well my my dad got me into it when when I was really young. He used to take me to the police athletic league uh in the the town next to ours and we would we would train um we wouldn't really spar a whole lot, but uh if you go to a police athletic league, they have all of like these instruments that you use to practice boxing that like you don't see anywhere else. Like, there's there's different shapes of uh, punching bags to practice different kinds of punches on and, and all that. So I got to use all of that for a few years. And and then I stopped, and then I got chubby, and then I got put into CrossFit, and then I was kind of less chubby. Then I went into cross country and lost a fucking ton of weight there. Do you think CrossFit is flaw? Yes, 100%. Why? There's no focus on form and i i won't claim to be any semblance of an expert on the human anatomy and fitness as a field but from from the two and a half three years that i've been lifting weights pretty consistently the the one thing that i've learned that's the most important thing to keep in mind when you're on a lifting regimen, is form, because if you have shitty form, and you only focus on you know pure volume as they do in CrossFit, you'll you'll end up working other muscles besides the ones that you're intending to work, and by doing that, that can lead to some you know major drawbacks in terms of uh, uh, like muscle bone problems both farther on down the road and pretty immediately too i'm just i'm i'm not a fan it, it seems rather rather cultish to
0: me yeah was was crossfit like a fitness trend because i remember a ton of people doing it when i was in high school but i, I yeah. haven't met anybody who does it now
1: yeah it was it was it was a trend and it was almost kind of a cult because there there was some serious uh some serious gatekeeping in in the community at least the one that I was involved in aren't there levels of crossfit
0: too isn't there some weird pyramid
1: uh, i i don't know i've i've never heard of that but there there could be keep in mind I, I was like 13 when when i got put in the crossfit
0: was i guess i guess the way that crossfit appeared to me for, as like an outsider was it almost looked like a pyramid scheme because i remember tons of people who did crossfit in my high school trying to recruit me or something because they would get some like they'd get some like membership perks for recruiting me i'm not sure if that was like a like a fort myers thing
1: i i don't know about that scheme in particular but i i do remember that at at my gym nothing was free like mm-hmm. it, it, even down to the the fact that they didn't have cups for you to uh like pour the water from the cooler into you had to bring your own you know water mugs and and whatever everything everything was for profit there uh you know they they would they would try and sell you like electrolyte mixes they would try and sell you Uh, like cryotherapy, they would try and sell you just
0: all of this stuff. I I was going to say electrolyte mixes and, 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 you know, sports water bottles is like typical for like regular gyms, but I I wasn't ready for the cryotherapy. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. That's, that's one thing that I really kind of liked
1: about CrossFit. Probably the, the one thing that I liked most about it was that they, they were pretty early to the bandwagon on recognizing the benefits of cryotherapy
0: what are the benefits of cryotherapy i still kind of see it as like a like a weird sci-fi so way of, uh, relaxing
1: while while i've never uh gone through cryotherapy i've had a number of friends go through it who have had these really serious injuries as a result of physical activity whether it's you know torn ACLs or dislocated shoulders and whatnot I from from what they've told me the the process of cryotherapy for them really really it it eased their pain and through like a what What might be chalked down to a um placebo effect kind of helped them recover faster
0: really so so yeah, like, it, does it have similar effects to I guess like the absolute reverse because I know there's like proven health benefits for uh, like stuff like saunas and and that sort of thing
1: i I would say so i I don't really know too much about it though i've I've been led to the conclusion that there are, at present, more benefits to it being available than not. Right. However, it is crazy expensive.
0: I was going to say, it's also, like, weirdly, like, it's, like, drastically unnatural. I mean, like, you can kind of, like, say that, like, in in the wild, at least, in in some of the colder parts of the world that i guess humans would be in contact with that kind of cold Mm -hmm. Um, but i don't think that like going from like a a normal body temperature or i guess from like a normal air temperature of like you know maybe like uh high 60s to like high 70s anywhere in that range to like does it doesn't it go yeah it goes below below freezing yeah oh yeah how long do you know how long you stay in there um it depends
1: i i know that some some cryotherapy uh, regimens they they require you to go through like multiple very very brief uh, stints in the cryotank and other I, I i could be getting this wrong but others they they put you in the cryotank and then they like slowly drop it down to that okay. Below so, zero so you like a-
0: you acclimate?
1: Sometimes and sometimes not.
0: Hmm. I
1: I think it depends on like what you're trying to accomplish by doing the cryotherapy.
0: And and typically, it's used as like a post-workout thing. Yes. Yeah. Either a post-workout or a therapeutic thing. What What's mm-hmm. the pricing on it? Cause you said it was expensive. Like, like what's expensive in, in the context of, I guess, recovery.
1: Well, the, the only, the only price tag that I've ever concretely known of was when, uh, Florida Southern bought, I think they have like three or four cryotherapy pods. Y'all, y'all,
0: are, y'all have cryotherapy there?
1: Yeah. Yeah. All of the That's athletes crazy. are lo- allowed to use them. Which kind of sucks because I'd be curious <laughs> to try them, right? Um, and I, I know that those units cost upwards of like a hundred thousand dollars plus.
0: That's that's pretty crazy. But I mean, at the same time, I'm not sure how much you know about like technology prices. I guess in that vein, I know it probably costs like a like a tremendous. Uh, you you probably have to have some crazy like battery work to to be able to change right. a temperature so drastically like that
1: and Um, and you also need a steady supply of uh nitrogen gas right that's that's what they use to drop the temperature so quickly and nitrogen gas is not cheap when you're using it in big
0: volumes (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, so they have like oh so i guess what i was gonna say is like it's not really not that outrageous for like the the price of things do you know how much like the da vinci machines do you know what a da vinci machine is no, in hospitals, there's been this recent wave. I mean, maybe this goes back as far as like when I was in high school. So maybe like, uh, you know, now like three, four, five years ago. Um, I remember seeing one for the first time when I went to a went went to a hospital and kind of shadowed. Um, they're these machines, and they allow they allow the surgeon to almost be playing like a video game, uh, in the sense that they're standing behind a screen and they're they're watching uh you know they're they're I mean they're watching a screen, and they have these their arms and these oh uh, oh, have you seen uh neon Genesis you know it's funny you should say that <laughs>
1: Joe and I were just talking about that last night, and i'm I'm going to start watching it probably
0: tonight this is controversial, but I don't think it's that good, and I know I'm gonna get hate for it, but uh but nonetheless, it's almost like you're controlling these giant robot arms with your hands.
1: Right, right.
0: And, and so like what they'll do, it, the, the whole point of this is so normally you have to make like a big incision if a surgeon's going to go in there and, and operate, right? Like in, in somebody's chest cavity or doing like a hysterectomy or whatever it may be, right? Mm-hmm. By having these robot arms, you can just put two like puncture holes in the person, right? And then the, the, the hands just go in there because the cameras are on the hands themselves on these robot hands. right right and the are you, hands are so small right so you can physically like just uh, it's pretty amazing but i guess the the point is these machines at the time i remember costed about like 1.2 million a piece
1: i mean it, it makes sense i from from an economic standpoint whenever you manufacture some machine or some some product that you literally cannot reproduce anywhere else you you have a lot of uh a lot of sway over how high you can set the price
0: we we talked about this a little bit on the, the last podcast episode but what do you make of i guess like I, th- I think the why the da vinci machine gets a little bit of criticism or at least hospitals out ad- adoption of the da vinci machine uh gets some criticism is like the the general high cost of healthcare. Do you? How much do you know about that?
1: Not, not too much. Uh, there, there is a a class available that I'm thinking about taking that discusses the the economics of healthcare in different economies throughout the world. Right. But uh, I I would think using the knowledge that I have now, I I would think that people are probably probably standoffish towards. Uh, hospitals buying and using these machines because you know while you can have all of this data and all of this back testing on these machines that says you know there's you know a a one percent failure rate and what whatever that failure means people are still not going to be able to trust.
0: So you think it's just distrust of machines, period? i,
1: I would I would say so, yeah, because you know when when you have when you have a human operating on you, you know to a certain extent, the the most important things that should be known about that person before they're able to you know open up your chest cavity and operate on your vital organs. You know that they've uh, you know that they've been in, thousands of uh operating theaters throughout their careers and you know that they're they're required to do a certain amount of training every week and you you know where they went to school and you you know where their interests lie and all this you can you can almost sort of i guess humanize for lack of a better term you can almost sort of humanize them at at that point and that's where that trust comes from but once you introduce this this non-sentient robot into the equation, people are probably going to be a little shaky.
0: Well, the crazy thing though is, regardless, I mean, throughout, I guess, throughout human history, and I mean, I could be wrong on this, but doctors, I, I mean, like, there's the, I guess, there's like an old stereotype of a dentist being rather, rather uh, dishonest or, or untrustworthy. But I'm, I'm not sure if you've noticed, like, even historically there's been kind of an irreverence for doctors even back when doctors were doing pretty crazy things in terms of like bloodletting and whatnot. Like people mm. actively believe a- actively believed them. And, and I mean, they trusted them like for instance, like even, even, George Washington, I think he died in part because of the bloodletting he was getting right at the end of his life. Uh, right. Right. As, as treatment for his illness. So I I guess the point is like, I, I, I think there's kind of a, I mean, not not that doctors today are comparable to like the doctors of old per se, but I think there's a, a blind tr- a, a blind trust for sure. I mean, like, but at the same time, how can you expect uh, like people to evaluate like an entire system that they don't understand? Like, even even when I have seen medical procedures, I like I still don't know what's going on, and I've like heard the terminology and and whatnot for a long time and that's not to say that doctors don't understand i'm just saying it's a it's a very uh it's a very it's a very hard i guess class of 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 um i guess it's a hard class of job for people to evaluate because it's so far what people so far from what people experience on a daily basis
1: right and it it probably has to do with the the human psychological reaction to strangers. I mean, it's it's essentially the same the same idea as being uncomfortable with letting a stranger into your house only right. instead of letting the stranger into your house, you're letting the stranger into
0: your body, right. But the crazy thing is like we have such an irreverence for doctors, and I'm not saying we shouldn't because you know I have a lot of respect for doctors, but I guess in the U.S. culture, we have such a respect for uh, doctors. They did some like psychological studies, and like if you do things like I think one of the studies that I read about was like if you put like lab coats on on people, like doctors' medical lab coats, uh, and you have them take a standardized test, and you and you tell these people that these are doctors' lab coats, they do like marginally better on this test. Huh. But, and, and and by the same token, if you tell them it's like a, a like a painter's uh, coat they do they do worse on the test which is wild so like i i think there's a such a such an irreverence that we have for doctors that like even just us kind of in that imaginary uh uh doctor disguise for lack of a better term um it still leads us to physically or i guess psychologically change
1: right right and that's these are things that can't be changed by any sort of policy or, you know, any any sort of organization. Human psychology can't be artificially manipulated. It has to be allowed to evolve over time, because there's no other option.
0: Right, and and I mean, as far as human psychology or human psychology being kind of manipulated uh, over time. How how do you think that kind of ties in with uh, general politics in the United States, if it does? Well, funny funny
1: you should say that. Uh, I'm I'm actually in a class right now where we're studying the similarities and differences between campaigns and elections throughout the past uh, 170 years. And okay if if there is if there's one thing that i've learned thus far it's that human psychology over the course of 170 years does not change right humans humans will always react in a pretty predictable way to political campaigns as as a function of the environments that they were raised in and the values that they have you can you can change you can change the time and you can change the technology and you can change the mediums by which politicians and candidates communicate with the electorates. but that that will never change the fact that this is this is a transaction between two people, between the candidate and the individual voter. And so in that, there are there are certain tenets that political scientists believe don't change over time and these these tenets shape the the environment in which an election and the study of that election will be done and it's the right. rules the rules binding the election the reality of the election the strategy of the election and the electorate itself these these things might undergo minute changes But they all they all impact and have impacted uh, the the ways by which voters react to certain things in the same way over the past
0: 170 years. So so can you give an example of of one such, I guess, factor? Sure, sure. I mean, yeah, yeah.
1: So. I, I mentioned I mentioned these realities, and I keep mentioning this hundred and seventy year mark and and you might say, well, the the United States has been having elections for far longer than a hundred and seventy years, but not in the way that we have elections now. A hundred and seventy years ago was the the benchmark, I guess you could call it, the the creation of a benchmark that cemented the different processes that presidential elections in particular would interact with until now and that which, is the election,
0: election yeah which election the, was 170 years ago
1: the election of andrew jackson ah. andrew the election of andrew jackson marked the beginning of the development of the modern campaign as we know it because Prior to Andrew Jackson's campaign, there were a number of pretty ancient and barbaric laws in place regarding, you know, who could vote and who couldn't. And this isn't even touching on the impact that freeing the slaves had later on in that century. So prior to Andrew Jackson's election, you had to own land, and you had to be literate, and you had to, vis a vis, be wealthy and white in order to vote and in order to interact with politics in America.
0: This is this is all pre women's suffrage, too. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yes. And so there there were some laws that were changed uh, in the years leading up to Andrew Jackson's campaign, and really. He say, say what you will about the man. he He may have been the the purveyor of genocide against the Native Americans. And he may have been an incredibly racist individual, but either intentionally or not, he transformed American democracy. and And here's how. So Andrew Jackson tried to run for president prior to his election and right. his opponents started to criticize his background they they started to say things like well you know we we don't know where he was born he could have been born outside of the us territories so what qualifies this guy to to run for president and they they started to make ad hominem attacks against his family and you know, there there was right. newspapers being circulated that were propagating the idea that his mother was a prostitute and things like that. And that gave way to the sort of shit-talking approach to presidential elections that we're seeing now and that we have yeah. seen in the 170 years since this election. And so Andrew Jackson, he he came to learn that, this idea could be manipulated to help him get into office. And so he took it a step further and he he said, well, the the people that beat me in the past, they were only saying these things to the wealthy white landowners. But in the year that he was elected, these laws were put in place that allowed everyone to vote, or at least every white male to vote regardless of their income or holdings and so he began to try to reach out to individual voters by tweaking his campaign's message to different regions of the u.s territories to to different populations so he was doing like targeted advertising exactly and it was through that that he gained a huge, huge following. And as we all know, he won a massive amount of the popular vote
0: and became president. Wasn't he crazy, though? Like, like, he, didn't he just do absolutely crazy things? I mean, like, besides his actual policy, I mean, like, as a person, didn't he, like, do? Yes. Yeah. Duel he, and, and, and binge drink at the White House?
1: Oh, yeah. Um. It's it's kind of a a big trope in uh, the presidential histories that when he gave his, um, when he gave his initial address, once he was sworn in as president in DC, he was drunk. He was visibly drunk giving (laughs) his speech. And some people say, well, you know, he had the, I think their, their excuse was he had the cold at the time. So Back in those days, they would prescribe whiskey to try and alleviate some of the symptoms. Right. But regardless, this man knew that he was going to be giving a speech to thousands of people, and he still showed up inebriated. And they right. loved him. His his approval ratings, it, at least as far as early 1800s polling goes, his approval ratings never really took... Uh, Took a dip at any point. People love this guy, regardless of how rich or poor they were. They they felt for him because he was able to humanize himself to them.
0: Was Andrew and, Jackson born rich? Was he like an aristocrat? Like kind No, of
1: no, person? not at all. He was actually born well, there's a there's a big debate over where he was born because he was born right. in the wild, in <laughs> in the woods somewhere between North and South Carolina and so there's i i don't remember the names of the two towns but there's two towns that are right next to each other one's in north carolina one's on south one's in south carolina and they've been going at it for the past 170 years debating over which town gave birth to andrew jackson and there's there's no way of finding out
0: G- given today's i guess political climate would that even be a bragging right N- not particularly no yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: i mean in south carolina maybe because they're uh
0: oh yeah without
1: without being too verbose they're they are a few decades behind the times in terms of uh social equality and
0: right things like that what do you think about i mean i'm not sure how how far you've gotten in terms of the elections uh temporally what about uh you know election of 60 uh,
1: 68 and 72 uh election of 60 was johnson right
0: Ooh, it might have been johnson but i think it was uh well i mean it was technically it's uh it's or uh, no sorry jfk jfk
1: yeah 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 it was jfk versus nixon and Okay, so you said 1960, 1964?
0: Nope, 1968 and, and, and uh, 1972. Because I I don't think the 1964 was like a, a real election in the right, way. Right, right. Because it was, it was more so... Uh,
1: 1968 it was, more... was Johnson's re-election. And...
0: 1968? 1968 yes. was uh, Nixon v. Wallace versus... Uh... Oh man, who was the candidate? Humphrey, maybe okay okay 72 is uh nixon versus mcgovern right so nixon is a very similar character
1: to andrew johnson in in terms of he ethically and morally a lot of people disagree with what he what policies he put forward as president you know as we all know he enacted the war on drugs in order to reduce the amount of minorities and political dissidents that could vote against him right. in in the next election. Um, how, however, there is one major thing that he contributed to the modern political process that, for better or for worse, we can't go back on, and that is the proliferation of politicized news.
0: Yeah, he he attacked the press, didn't he? And uh, especially his uh, yes. president. Yes, he.
1: I believe he was actually the first person to ever use the term "fake news." Yeah. And funny enough, uh, Roger Ailes, the founder of Fox News, <laughs> was at one point uh, an employee of the Nixon administration. I'm I'm not sure in what capacity, but I know that while he was in the Nixon administration, he was able to document the ways that richard nixon would uh sort of flame up the press and use their their use their own methods of journalism against them saying oh you know you're you're trying to attack me for such and such reason and through through the nixon administration the modern idea of fox news cnn msnbc those those ideals were born
0: right I mean something. I, I, I'm not sure if uh, you talked about this in, in your your class yet, um, or if you will talk about it. I'm taking a class like simple like it's only dedicated to Watergate. But I mean, of course, in learning about Watergate, you have to learn about like all the characters, I guess right. associated. Um, and one of the things we've talked about a lot is, uh, and and this is uh, this also might get a little bit of hate. So the the 60 election, uh, JFK v Nixon to put it to put it simply um there were a lot of dirty tricks by the kennedy family if you look back uh and i can i can send you a a good book on, on it that i've been reading um in any case nixon lost uh kind of playing by the rules in the 60 election and so really i think what you see is you see nixon say uh you know nixon was the vice president of a of an incredibly popular president of Eisenhower, um, and then you know Nixon fails to be elected, in part due to uh, some dirty campaign tactics, um, uh, s- some some downplaying of uh, Nixon's, I guess, role in helping the uh, the status of civil rights in the United States and so on and so forth. Uh, mm-hmm by JFK and so I think really that's the event that causes Nixon to go sort of you see in the 68 election but obviously in the 72 election to uh, go the complete like paranoia route uh, right I mean like he 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 really uh, really post JFK after he lost that election that's when you really see him gain like the the hatred for I guess what he calls the liberal media um, during that time like, for instance, uh, the coverage of him after the first televised presidential debate uh, was rather negative, um, even though in, in the long term, historians have looked back at those debates. And uh, some of them have said that, for all intents and purposes of, of, of I guess, uh, like logical argument, we don't really have this style of debate anymore. I'm sure you can talk about that, too. Um, Nixon w- won those debates uh, by some accounts but the way it was covered at the time um the i mean as you probably know the the kennedy family was like incredibly powerful uh, right in in politics at the time and that just really gave uh nixon a distaste for the the political system and you know if you can't beat him join him and he played dirty than dirtier than maybe every every other political every other president to the to this point um yeah, maybe maybe you'd like to talk about that. What kind of what kind of um, dirty dirty campaign tricks have been tried? I don't know recently because it seems that we're evolving to a, or devolving to a point of just using you know more ad hominem attacks. I'm not sure if you watched the debate last night. I I did actually. Right. Well,
1: I I would argue that the. The the verbal and the sort of advertising content of campaigns hasn't changed significantly over over the years since uh, since that election. However, there there's one aspect of campaigning that has, and this is where all of the more meaty dirty tricks come in, and that's in campaign finance. So. Er, candidates, candidates, and their campaign managers found out early on that they could galvanize and that they could fuel the 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 fires, if you will, within their supporters by making these ad hominem attacks against their opponents. That's that's a trick that's older than man. Right. But the 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 variable that that plays into that and allows you to use that trick on the scale that will allow you to win is the legal environment in which your campaign is financed. So, for for instance, a, a huge expenditure of any campaign now is on television time and social media ads. Be- right. simply, simply because these campaign managers know that their message works there's there's nothing wrong with it inherently in term as a function of gaining their victory in the polls but they run into the issue of having enough money to literally force this message down the throats of all of their potential voters and so in this we've we've had a number of of major evolutionary steps in the the means by which campaigns are financed and the rules have changed significantly over the years i of course we have the the infamous citizens united decision which essentially gave uh corporations and other non-person actors the same rights to donate to political campaigns as individuals and I was, I was actually talking to a, a gentleman this afternoon who is the head of campaign finance for a congressional candidate up in New Hampshire. And he, he had something very interesting to say because I asked him, I said, where, where do you think the future of campaign finance goes? Because without proper financing, you have no campaign and you have no advertising. And sure. he, he said this, it's a very stark point. He said, there there will always and forever be loopholes that people will find and exploit in the written letter of the law pertaining to campaign finance. And through that, for example, in New Hampshire, where he was running this campaign, there's a loophole that essentially allows an individual to create a fake limited liability corporation donate the uh the fec maximum amount which is twenty eight hundred dollars to a candidate and then that person can just make another fake llc and do the exact same thing and there's nothing wrong with that in the eyes of the law you you can't charge that person with bribery or breaking uh fec guidelines you because the argument can be made that that person was operating within the confines of the law. And this is this is a brand new trick that's unique to elections in New Hampshire. And vis a vis, there are inevitably loopholes in every state's uh campaign finance laws and even the federal campaign finance laws that legal scholars will find and exploit.
0: But but what does all this what does all this mean for like the to, you know this might be um I hope this doesn't get conveyed the wrong way, but what does all this mean for the the poor man's candidate, so to speak? So uh the the grassroots fundraiser, and I'm not talking like I mean Bernie Sanders might be an example, but I'm talking about like even lower than Bernie Sanders, like somebody who really tries to accept no donations except those from actual people who do it in like a uh like a fair manner. So you know we talk about like like you were saying, there's nothing wrong with it in the eyes of the law, but there are some candidates right. who try to try to only raise their money in like ethical ways.
1: I I think the the decision of a candidate to go with the grassroots approach, it's it's very unique to the environment in which that election is being held because we look at uh, the election of AOC to Congress. Her her entire campaign was grassroots. She right. would personally go and walk throughout uh, her her district in the Bronx and talk to individuals about her policies. And eventually, you know, maybe they would give her money, maybe they wouldn't. And she did all of this through the uh, back office of the bar that she was working in at the time. And a lot of people might look at that and say, oh, why why doesn't everyone do that? Well... People, by and large, in New York have more disposable income than people in bootleg Arkansas, for instance. And so, there there comes a point if your district doesn't have the means or the willingness to uh, support your grassroots campaign that you need to be open to the idea of accepting donations from larger non-person actors, like uh, political action committees and uh, victory funds and, and things like that.
0: Do you think that corrupts the process, though? Uh, I guess of uh, a candidate serving the people in a utilitarian sense. Like, so you have, um, I, I guess, I guess the most kind of baseline way to put it would be, so you have a candidate that's supposed to serve, you know, say 100 people um but in a but in actuality if they go up based off of uh, kind of the disproportionate influence of of money they might be serving the interests of, of three of those 100 people and uh neglecting the policies of the 97 other or the the policy desires of the 97 other just because there's that disproportionate influence of wealth on the campaign
1: well in in the days of old yes that that would absolutely be true uh, for for example you look at the election of uh, william mckinley to to the presidency in i believe it was 1904 and his campaign was sponsored almost entirely by three men and that's john rockefeller andrew carnegie and j p morgan because his opponent was essentially the early 1900s definition of a socialist. He wanted to crack down on the trusts, and he wanted to raise taxes, and and all that jazz. And there were no restrictions on how much any individual could give to a campaign. And so these three guys just got together, and they literally bought his victory to the white house, because there was no way that the opposing candidate was, was going to come close to the amount of resources at McKinley's disposal at the, at the time that they were running. But right. that, that has changed drastically since then. And with, with the advent of Uh, you know, electronic donations that are, you know, easily monitored by the Federal Elections Commission, and with the advent of uh, maximum caps set on the amount of money that any individual or non-person actor can give to a candidate, I, I would say it would be hard for, hard if not impossible for a an interested party to buy a candidate as as you're suggesting because in order to do so they would have to go out of their way to perform some really suspect act like maybe taking advantage of that loophole in new hampshire in in order to donate enough money to garner some political capital with
0: that uh candidate Hmm. what do you think about kind of Well, speaking of, I guess, pandering to certain political issues by, I guess, by a constituency, what do you think about kind of the election cycle uh, this year, kind of after COVID hit? Because things did change pretty drastically in terms of, I guess, definitely the talking points as we saw in last night's debate.
1: Right, right. So looking looking at broad strokes and then moving moving our way towards the more minute details of the impact of covid we there there's a number of things that haven't changed and that would be the role that the press plays in uh, as as a function of giving information to the electorate about these candidates the the role of maintaining a steady relationship with the press is just as important now as it was pre-COVID. And the same goes for campaign financing. There has been no changes, no major changes, at least in campaign finance law between 2016 and now. So that that element is still of extreme importance as well. Now, the, the change that both the the presidential election and the all of the other smaller elections throughout the country have undergone is the this sort of shift from you know televised advertisements and uh, you know radio broadcasts and whatnot to social media. there There has never been a time since the the advent of Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and all that where, Candidates have been more hard pressed to maintain a relationship with their voters through social media right. than now. Right. Because
0: right. Did did you see did you see this is you know semi-off topic, but it might be of interest to you? Did you see AOC playing Among Us a few days ago? No, I didn't, but that's that's yeah, she got huh. like if I don't, may, it might have been like half a mil viewers. Was it on like Twitch or something? Yeah, yeah, no, it was on Twitch. What? I know, right? So that's I think I think that cool. I think that's <laughs> I think that only gives you know credit to your point or I mean I'm I'm sure you know of like the more the more benign examples of like uh, a- AOC just provides a great example cuz she does it all the time but like I guess going live on Instagram and and uh doing things like eating dinner <laughs> while, th- right, right. while talking to her followers
1: So well I let guess, me let me ask yeah, you this do you do you know if she won Ooh, I don't. That that would that would be of interest if you could find that out. I, I'd I I'd be intrigued to know what uh what her approach to a game about deception
0: is. Right. That you know what? I, I I'd have to I'd have to watch. I only tuned in for, you know, like two minutes because it was it was popping up everywhere and I got and a clip got sent to me and I was like, is this real? Um <laughs> but Nonetheless, I guess, I guess, would you consider that to be like an, an, well, I mean, not that video games are like an example of social media inherently, but Twitch is uh, to a certain extent. What do you think of, what do you think of that kind of now, now we see, obviously, if you go anywhere, whether it be like Instagram or Snapchat, or, I mean, I don't really use Facebook too much, but I have just seen like election ads, you know, no matter where I go. What do you think about this different type of involvement? That's more like uh, it's almost like a town hall, right? I
1: I I think that that's the the advent of the you know the Zoom town hall is right. a very natural and honestly predictable reaction of candidates to the reality that COVID has placed on their campaigns. So through hosting these town halls and through excuse me and and through their increased involvement on social media they're they're simply trying to uh adhere to one of the main tenets of running a successful election and that is to be as close to the individual voter as possible i mean even down to you know knocking on doors in the the pre-covid world if the the more human that you can or the, rather the more humanized you can make your supporters view you if 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 that makes sense
0: Th- that the, 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 more, the more the more
1: human you you can make your supporters view you the more likely they are to understand where you're coming from when you make the when you when you've forge these these policy positions that you're running on and at at the end of the day uh, with the election of donald trump in 2016 being a prime example people might not even agree with the policies that you're putting forward but because you appeal to their their very human nature and they can look at you and say yeah that's that's a real person. He's he or she has been, you know, down in the ditches, and he huh. or she has experienced the the bliss of victory before in their lives. I like this person. I, this is a person that I can trust. It kind of goes along with uh, what what we were talking about earlier with the uh, Da Vinci machine. If if a candidate appears as simply a, a robot spewing these these policies that a a think tank thought up for them odds are people are going to view them as a robot and they're probably not going to vote for them even if they
0: agree with their policies do you think this is all kind of more of a shift i mean in the sense of so the way i think hmm, do you think this is all more of a shift in the way that americans kind of perceive fame I I think as a broader a broader issue because now we see that celebrities are expected to be uh like I guess more and more human. I mean like obviously like the mm-hmm. whole the whole Ellen debacle showed uh that pretty clearly. But I mean even if you go back, you know, to the nineties, you had you had celebrities, uh, if you consider him a celebrity like Stanley Kubrick, uh, you know, somebody who was uh profoundly famous and, and also admired, um but who was just like a like an awful person uh to be around for a lot of people right but that's almost what you saw with politicians going way back when i mean like uh john f kennedy and, and richard nixon are both great examples like these are people who are you know they they don't necessarily try to appeal to that humanness that we see now they try to appeal to like the deification of a person almost like how we deify george washington now uh they my perception is that the campaigns of old preyed on the fact that all that people would know about a candidate was what they were able to see on TV and that they would never actually have like contact or, or recorded information on that individual that would, uh, I guess, cut down that brand.
1: I, I would argue to the inverse of that. I, I think that in, in recent years with the advent of the internet and social media and and all of all of this stuff that humans have come to use to sort of occupy these empty spaces in their lives where they might you know they might otherwise be uh, reading a newspaper or doing a crossword puzzle or something like that they've they've come to expect a lot more of celebrities because seeing seeing a movie or seeing a very good movie it's it's not out of the realm of reality anymore i could i can you know i can find and watch movies anywhere i want and i can i can say oh whoever this person is they're a pretty decent actor however i have no interest in following their lives anymore outside of watching this movie right so in in that, celebrities and candidates as sort of proto celebrities have been forced to make themselves more present in their constituents' lives because they know that if they can garner a cult following from their constituents, whether you be an actor or a politician, perhaps both are the same thing. But right. if you can if you can garner that that cult following to any extent you you will always be at the forefront of that person's mind whenever if if you're a film actor whenever films are discussed or if you're a politician whenever politics are brought up and so in instead of instead of thinking in instead of thinking that uh that society has placed these roles on celebrities in the past few years i would argue that celebrities have placed these roles on society
0: mm. you know that makes sense to me i actually i i have a question and this kind of again uh can can has the potential of derailing the conversation but what do you think about you know like obviously we have donald trump uh, who is, in a sense, a reality TV star uh, mm-hmm. before he was president. Uh, what do you think of, I mean, this is a, a, definitely a less serious example, but uh, I'd argue a more obvious example. What do you think about celebrities like, I mean, we had Arnold Schwarzenegger, obviously, uh, run for governor a while ago, um, or Hunter S. Thompson, who, who might have a little bit more qualification as, uh, I guess, given given his work and his interest in politics throughout his career maybe not through his actual physical qualifications um but but now we have kind of besides donald trump what do you think about the campaign of kanye west do you think that's kind of like a spoiler campaign
1: i i would argue not um silly silly as the idea of electing Kanye West to the most powerful position in the world may be there there have always been these uh, outliers be be them celebrities or political extremists there there have always been these these sort of outlier candidates in uh, in these races even outside of the third parties that have came up in the past 30 40 years
0: what do you think about kind of, I mean, you know, Kanye is, Kanye is an example of a third party. It, may, it might not really be accurate, given that he's kind of the only person in his proclaimed party. But what do you think about the notion? I mean, obviously, you, you know something about, you know, the history of elections. What do you think about things like the 68 election, where there was a, it was really a three-way election in a sense? Why, why don't we have, and I mean, I was talking um, with some people from Ecuador and they were telling me about how one of the things that they kind of detest most when they think about our the U.S.'s political system is the fact that it's always like an us versus them problem uh, in having a two-party system in Ecuador. They said something like they had like 20 parties hmm. that, that all were vying in, uh, for office and they all had a legitimate chance of winning. That was my understanding of our conversation. But we really haven't had that. I mean maybe the 68 election is an example of us having that but that you know now we're looking at uh, 50 years really since then which is pretty crazy half a century has gone by without a candidate even even being able to contest the two major parties and you see this notion over over and over again and it's not just like the third party saying this you get kind of this uh discrediting of the idea of a third party from you know the two major parties themselves. They say, as Nixon and Agnew said back in the '68 election, in order that that the Republicans could take over the South uh, in that election, they said, um, "George, Wall- don't don't vote for George Wallace because he can't win." So the notion, I guess, has been perpetuated that third parties can't win. What do you think about that? I.
1: You know if if you 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 may have stumped me, and I think that's a question that will stump any political scientist because it's it's a very it's a very loaded question. and it's it's a question that uh, begs a description of how we arrived at the two-party system that we have here right. and like no other country on earth has. So,
0: wait really has no other country arrived at the two-party system at least no developed
1: country as as far as i know other countries have weird little weird little quirks where you know maybe they they have like a runoff of you know five ten fifteen parties and then like the most popular two get to debate or something like that but by and large no no other developed country has um this two party system that's as concretely founded as as ours and i i would argue that it is possible for a third party to to win an election even a presidential election because both the republican and the democratic parties were once third parties right they they were both at at one point or another very very small minorities and they they adapted their respective messages with the times and they were able to sort of build up this trust for their messages in their respective constituencies over time and eventually they you know it's it's very gradual and it often starts from the ground up like Right. with with the republican party Abe, Abe Lincoln was not the first republican candidate on any ballot there there was a a number of smaller positions like uh you know congressional representatives or county commissioners and people like that who were republicans and who were elected prior to Lincoln's election right and so through this building up of trust in that particular uh school of thought eventually a third party can and it's within reason to assume that they can set their eyes on the presidency
0: but I, but i think nonetheless you would agree that today the the republican and democratic party i mean not only are they different from when how they were when they were founded but they're they're different than even the prominent parties of the heyday of 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 Republicans and Democrats being minority parties, like I, I guess my point is the Republican and Democratic parties now. It's not just like you know there's the possibility, and clearly we have the existence of third parties. I guess the point is that Republican and Democratic parties now seem at least so powerful in their reach, and it really seems like the the narrative has been perpetuated. Like don't vote vote third party. I mean, like there's a common notion of and i remember watching a a clip of bernie sanders saying that that a third party vote uh, in in maybe it was the 80s or the 90s when he was saying it but he was saying a third party vote isn't a waste and then there's a, a another clip of him in 2016 saying not you know not to waste your vote on a third party and i think just like the the reach and the power of the two primary political parties today allows for the i guess the dissemination of a narrative that's harmful to the I mean the potential for any third party to win.
1: I I would argue to the contrary. I Really? Yes. And if if you look at how um the the Democratic Party was treated prior to their um rise to fame if you will, the the Federalist and the Democratic Republican parties, they treated the newly formed Democrats very similarly to how we treat, uh, third parties today. And don't get me wrong. This, this isn't to say that I think that the third parties shouldn't be allowed on the debate stage. I think they should. I I think that that is part of the democratic process to allow all of these, uh, minority opinions to, to be spoken aloud to the public. But there's there's always been gatekeeping in politics from and and this this isn't something that's ever going to change because it's just part of human nature if you have power you want to hold on to it and it's it's been that way from the roman republic all the way until now and so i i think in due time there there is definitely potential and there is definitely uh I would say a good chance that we might see another major party become or be formed within our lifetimes. Yeah. I I think that because I, I was once uh, a member of the libertarian school of thought mm-hmm. and I, I've, I'm no longer a, a member of that right. school of thought, but they'll, they'll always argue, you know, that this this gatekeeping that the Republicans and the Democrats are uh, enforcing on the Libertarians is wrong, and that you know they they should be punished for their malfeasance to the democratic process and and all this jazz. But at the end of the day, not a lot of people agree with the Libertarian school of thought, and that is what's keeping them back. That that right. and the same goes for the Green Party. I if 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 a person with a college education with a basic undergraduate education can dismantle the ideals behind the libertarian platform then maybe i think they need to reevaluate their positions on policies and how they approach their their school of thought of you know everything being free market
0: Right. What do you think about, I mean, I I just, maybe it's, maybe it's my background coming from kind of like a a place that more looks at like kind of behavioral analytics. Uh, What do you think of, I guess, maybe you say it was this way before, and it's my limited, my limited scope of knowledge and hearing about how other countries really don't have this system. Mm -hmm. Uh, But do you think, I mean, I really was, I talked about this the other day, Um, every war, at least when you kind of look at it, there's really the typical war, especially civil wars, they're always, they're always double-sided, right? There's like, there's two sides, there's not really like three sides or four sides and whatnot, and I guess what I'm trying to say is the bipartisanship, I, I guess, lends itself especially well to I I guess what sociologists and psychologists would call like an us versus them uh, dichotomy and, Mm -hmm. and and breakdown. And and I mean, like that was very obvious on the the debate stage last night. Or, I mean, even the last time, uh, the, the, the first debate. Sure. Sure. Like, I'm not sure. What are your thoughts? Do you think that the, the, the political animosity Uh, now is is unique and and do you think we're getting towards a boiling point or is that not for you to say
1: well there's there there's two there's two arguments in political science that people adhere to when it comes to the topic of how divided politics are in today's day and age from the from the consumer standpoint if you will I, I would agree that there has never been a time in which uh, people have been more divided with each other on the basis of their political alignments. And right. I I think with without having a background in psychology and sociology, I, I would tend to believe that that division is attributable more to... Other extraneous uh, actors in the political arena than the two parties. So, and that's because if you if you turn around and you view this from the party perspective, nothing has really changed. There there has been the the messages that they put out today and the same uh, you know elevator speeches that candidates give today about you know the other guy is a scoundrel and here's why <laughs> that that hasn't changed over the past 170 years that is that has remained the same and so that leads us to the conclusion that perhaps there's something some actor or some ideal that's been born within our society from from the 1940s and 50s until now That's, that's caused this divide between individuals on the basis of party.
0: Mm.
1: Because prior, prior to that, and really prior to the last 30 years, because that's, that's when we've experienced this huge divide is over the past 30 years. Prior to that, I, I mean, if, if I was a Republican and you were a Democrat and we were both Inherently decent Americans, and we we were, you know, there, there was nothing odd about us in in terms of our political beliefs. We would get along just fine. And there's there's actually a statistical metric that, um, they I don't know who they is, but right. that that they've been using uh, to calculate how divided people have become over the past thirty years and i i would i would almost tend to believe that you could attribute that to the advent of politicized news okay because back in the day when when you received any form of media that was very obviously tilted in favor for or against a candidate you you knew that that was coming from straight down the pipe from that person's campaign but now the the line is is not so clearly drawn because you know say say that i'm a republican and i'm a big trump supporter i i wake up in the morning and i'm making my breakfast and i turn on fox news so that i can see what the weather is going to be like today and of course, I find out what the weather is going to be like today. But I also receive this little tidbit about the the latest tea on Joe Biden's son, <laughs> right. and and so it, through these little these little cookie crumbs that the politicized news sources have been dropping into the laps of the uh, Democratic consumers, I think that has served to divide americans more than any other
0: variable has Mm. what do you think i guess kind of following the lines of division what do you think divides uh, i mean earlier today i was talking with somebody about uh, there's there's a particular i guess we talk a lot about in america the wealth divide and, you know, that dev- that divide also kind of applies not only to wealth, but wealth as a correlative uh, quality of life. What do you think kind of differentiates the quality of life in the United States from, you know, the quality of life in, in say, I don't know, the EU or Japan? I mean, the EU is a broad area. I I think that a, a good way to
1: sort of channel into this next segment is to to discuss the the role that economics plays in in both such grandiose ideas as the divide of the quality of life between america and the eu down to the very minute details that people don't really notice but engage in in their everyday lives and so i'll 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 begin by discussing the point that economics it isn't the quote-unquote dismal science that people think it
0: is
1: (laughs) rather i i've come to see it as a unique blend of psychology statistics and history that's that's helping us understand why people make the decisions that they do and some people might hear this and think well personal decisions that's that's more of a psychology thing. But but no, I I'd argue, and it is quite true that psychology studies the composition of the human mind and the conscious state, and what factors might affect the human experience in that regard. And economists, rather, ask key questions like, why did you choose to have eggs for breakfast rather than a bagel? Or why did you choose to get into a romantic relationship with this person instead of another? Or why, why did you wear this outfit out instead of another outfit? That's
0: like, that's like, that's like investment theory, right? For relationships.
1: Essentially. Yes. It's Hmm. one of, One of the first professors that I ever had uh, for economics and one of the most profound minds that I have ever had the pleasure of speaking to and learning from, his name is Dr. Pete Bias. And he, Hmm. he used to, or rather still does, do some very, very, very significant economic research that has placed him in the same circles as the americans that won the nobel prize in economics this year
0: and he Wait, he was what is what does an economist win win a nobel prize for so there's a
1: you you understand that there's like different nobel prizes for yeah, different yeah, subcategories yeah. so economics is one and they judge the uh the the worthiness of an economist to win that prize based on how 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 much they changed the general view of an economic principle, or rather how they've employed economics to better the qualities of life for the the people of the world?
0: That's what I'm wondering. so how how do I mean, obviously economics has a has a Immediate impact and how people perceive things in the way that we interact, uh, especially transactionally. Mm-hmm. So, so, so I guess to go back to the question, like, in in what ways is, is the transactional nature in America different uh, than than the, like you were mentioning, like the EU?
1: So, you you think about the reality of life in America right now, and and the divide in the quality of life between America and the EU is huge. I mean, the, just for example, our, there's, there's a metric that gathers the uh, strength of a country's educational system and is able to quantify that into a a numeric score. And the United States rates at like one of the lowest. I mean, we, we rank below a number of third world countries on that metric. And in terms of other metrics, too, I mean, one of one of them that stands out the most to me is that of the general happiness of citizens of these countries, people in America, by and large, are much much less happy than people in places like the EU. And so. This is this is interesting to me getting back on on the uh, the topic of the Nobel Prize for economics because there's almost a a 40-60 divide between Americans that have won the Nobel Prize in economics and Europeans that have won the Nobel Prize in economics hmm. and so that leads someone to think you know well why is there this huge difference even though they they both contribute greatly to the study of how we can maximize not only the efficiency of uh, a country's, for lack of a better term, human capital, but how, how there's this huge divide between the happiness that these inhabitants of these countries have and So it would be easy to make arguments like, well, the EU has a much smaller population than America, or Hmm. it's because the EU has adopted this like new wave socialism, which isn't true, by the way. And I'll I'll touch on that in a minute. But let's rather look at how the different institutions that interact within these countries differ in in the context of economics. So in America, many of the institutions that directly impact the standard of living, like the federal and state governments and their institutions, corporations and social groups, they all have their own agendas that are that are made by personal and social vendettas rather than a a more academic or unpoliticized outlook. And a a prime example of this would be to look at the role that the Department of Housing and Urban Development plays in the lives of American citizens. I mean, I'd be willing to bet that most Americans aren't even aware of the purpose of HUD outside of the fact that Ben Carson was the head of it at some point. (laughs) And if the leaders within HUD were to focus on were to focus their agendas on more academic and tangible goals like decreasing the homelessness rate in such and such community by doing such and such thing based in or grounded in science and economics and statistics, instead of simply being an arm of whoever inhabits the White House, we might see more Americans paying off their housing loans and finding more comfortable and convenient places to live. In in the EU, on the other hand, Institutions that are similar to HUD and things like that, they aren't nearly as politicized as they are in America. To 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 elaborate on that, to, to be appointed to a leadership position within one of these organizations in the EU requires a person to not only be actually qualified to make and pursue goals for that organization – but that they approach it from a scientific standpoint as opposed to a political one. And so I I mentioned earlier that there's this false belief that the EU is doing well because they're practicing this quote unquote socialism. And that's completely false. And here's why. So many countries in the EU have socialized certain aspects of life that are open to the free market here in America. And, with, with healthcare being among the most prevalent. Yeah. But the decision to do these things, to socialize those markets was made, get this by the free market. And (laughs) what, what the EU and Japan as well, Japan's the other big example of this, what they have done is really, it's extremely intuitive and it's, it's very, very, almost troubling that no one else has picked up this uh, system of, of doing things is that once every few months or once a year or once a quarter, there will be a required meeting of every key politician, every key government department head, and every key businessman in these countries in which they will not be allowed to leave that meeting until they have developed an agenda that an overwhelming majority of the folks attending these meetings agree to for the following quarter, month, year, decade, etc. And so instead of allowing each individual actor, if you will, to make their own agenda as we do here in America, they essentially force all of their actors to agree to a certain set of goals that they think will increase the quality of life for their citizens Or, in the case of the businessman, their customers and their bottom line. And they allow these actors to have enough freedom to pursue these goals in the ways that they see best because all of these actors are appointed by a sort of social meritocracy, if you will. Mm -hmm. They're all qualified to be speaking on the problems that they represent. And... So in, in short, the, the quality of life in these other countries is so much greater than that of America because all of the actors within these countries approach their goals by thinking through some very basic economic tenets. Like, if we all work together and put our minds to something, we can get what we want. Everyone can get what they want. And it's a, a pretty decent example of... uh some some contributions that american economists have made like nash equilibrium is a a huge example of that with without getting into the the minute details of you know what nash nash equilibrium is essentially it states that there are certain situations in which it would be very beneficial for uh the interacting parties to work together or to maybe divide into subgroups and then agree upon an approach to that problem. So instead of approaching the concept of economics with a, with a baseball bat like we do here in America, they, they approach it with a fine scalpel and they, they take care to think about what the potential consequences could be down the road of all of their decisions. And, and so I've, I've said all of this, and, and some of the listeners might be asleep by now. So, so I'll, I'll get back to brass tacks. If, if we as Americans want to try to do something to increase the quality of life here, amongst other things like a complete overhaul of our current system of education, we must begin to appreciate the school of thought that economics gives us. And I'm not saying that every person should be required to get a bachelor's degree in economics. I'm, I'm simply saying that if, if we begin to appreciate and understand our ability to choose between one thing and another and what the outcomes of that choice are, and if we begin to appreciate the sheer power of working together, even though we might not all agree on something – economics encourages this this sort of camaraderie and if we begin to examine that and if we begin to think like that we might see some serious changes made to the ways that we live and thrive here in America from the mighty like you know the homelessness situation all the way down to the minute which is like appreciating the small things in life appreciating the small choices that that you're given and presented with, and that's 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 my piece.
0: Hmm. And, and so I guess I guess all of this is to say that do you think that there's a way? I mean, obviously that business can be done. Period. But do you think? I mean, I mean, there's obviously, as you were discussing, a way that you know economics could be understood and harnessed for the better. But at the end of the day, this this kind of devolves in a sense to into a little bit more philosophical uh conversation do you think there's any any sort of way that we can ever reach kind of an ethical consumption is that is that for businesses to i guess for businesses to collaborate and figure out ways to make consumption more uh i guess ethical if you believe in like kind of a universal ethics or an objective ethics
1: i i to to a certain extent and and I can't speak on the the topic of ethics for nearly as long as as Joe can but right. I I think that there are certain certain things that virtually all humans consider to be ethical or unethical like killing another person unless you're a psychopath and you have some right. mental disability every human's going to agree that killing another person is wrong and so there's there's very broad uh situations in which that applies but getting back to your question is there a way in which we can regulate and bring about ethical consumption i would say yes absolutely if using using the eu as an example if if americans if american corporation if excuse me if if America were to sort of plan out the free market in the same way that uh, Europe does, where we bring together all of the relevant parties, public, private, and in between, and force them to come to a consensus in in which they have agreed upon a, a boundary... Beyond which our consumption should not pass, I think that's completely doable. And I think that we can do that while still maintaining the elements of free market capitalism that we've made ourselves so famous for. Hmm. because kind of kind of a tangent, but a, a lot of a lot of people who aren't uh, studying economics believe that, you know, all economists, have this consensus that the best market is a is a free market and that there should be like no laws and it's just a, a yeah. lawless hellscape of you know fra- yeah. flagrant capitalism it's
0: libertarianism but,
1: <laughs> right right but the the reality is much different from that um there's there's a general consensus among economists that there is absolutely a need for regulation in the markets there there is a role that the government has to play in those markets to ensure what you're saying to ensure that not only the markets are working to efficiently distribute goods and services to consumers and that the consumers are able to efficiently distribute their funds for the firms to invest but but rather they can tailor that approach to their individual country Hmm. and it's it's very easy and we can the united states can absolutely do this without turning into some communist state as many would have you believe
0: Hmm. so so the bottom line is there's a way to i guess you know have a collaboration among various actors of the united states that could in the end improve the quality of life for everyone in the united states you know without change without drastically changing our economic system
1: yes i i agree i i would say that hits the nail on the head mm. it if you if you look at from, from a broad strokes perspective, if you look at how different communities, whether they be communities of businesses or communities of scientists or communities of politicians, if you look at how they, how they congregate here in America, it's all very separate from each other. If you have a, a very important conference of scientists, there's going to be very few CEOs that are interested in attending it and vice versa. If you have a, a big conference in which, you know, you have major CEOs of the the banking industry sitting down and talking about, you know, where the interest rate should be going, there's going to be very few scientists that are interested in that. And so if, if we were to think up and develop a way in which we can start including people from different communities and different backgrounds in the decision making of science and of economics and of politics. I would say there is near a hundred percent probability that the the quality of life in America would increase.
0: So, so in that way, rather than I guess either side of uh, I guess the debate of, I guess the debate on mainstream economics would have you believe really the diversity of opinion is a good thing
1: yes it provides
0: sort of a regression to the mean
1: yes okay I, and it, if you want to get uh specific with this i i was just reading a um i think it was a bloomberg news report the other day where they were talking about the impacts of diversity requirements in the workplace and this is on a very minute scale. You know, we're we're talking diversity in terms of uh, race and social background and stuff in in the individual office. And they found that offices and companies that have a higher degree of diversity amongst their employees are often more efficient and produce a a much more grandiose bottom line than companies that are comprised of only one type of person Hmm. and so you know you'll you'll get people that'll tell you oh you know that's that's communist propaganda i shouldn't have to you know diversify my workforce well it's it's not it's it's free market economics man there's there's no reason there's no argument really that you can give to justify a system in which there is so little diversity amongst right. its various communities.
0: Hmm. Well said. Um, Thank you. Thanks for listening. For any questions or comments, don't hesitate to contact us at industryplant at industryplant See you in another two weeks.